You can't even give me a good morning. Come good on, morning. people. What is going on? Awesome job. So thankful for uh, David and, and the choir, um, an opportunity to share. So yeah, my name is Joshua Austin, as they mentioned. Uh, so same name as your pastor, first name, same kind of similar build. I'm 6'4", so I'm kind of similar height as him. Uh, but if you haven't noticed already, slightly different voice, right? This thing's a lot higher than Josh's. Uh, the Lord just gives us all kinds of things to humble at us. Uh, some people get a lazy eye. Some people get those toes that are facing every direction. I got this high voice. And uh, so, but, uh, but it's so cool how God uses uh, us in the midst of, of our weaknesses and quirks and kinks. Um, so, so thankful to be at Ashley River Baptist Church. Um, she's not there anymore. She disappeared. Claudia Freeman uh, was actually, when we moved down from New York City, my wife and I, brief history, we, we met in China while in the mission field with the International Mission Board for six months with a project. Um, I moved to New York City straight from there. About two years later, she joined me up there. Uh, we felt the Lord calling us to Charleston um, to work with college students. And so we got connected with Claudia Freeman, lived with her for three or four weeks while we closed on our house in Hanahan. And so we arrived on a Saturday, April 1st. I think the next day was Easter Sunday, and we, we came here to Ashley River. And so just so thankful for the family and the friends that we've made in this community um, and Ashley River being a special part of that. Just down the street from Claudia, you may know, is, is David and the Martin family. And um, so it's been such a joy to make those connections and meet those people. Um, my wife Marilyn is here, my better third. Um, if you see the two of us together, you'll understand why I call her my third, because I am absolutely uh, fully twice her size. Um, we just celebrated six years of marriage two weeks ago, and so it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so I work as a South Carolina Baptist Convention collegiate minister. So I'm employed by the state convention, operate downtown. They actually give us a building. They trust us with a building, which is awesome. So at 216 Calhoun Street downtown, right by MUSC, uh, just a few blocks over, is a, a building that we operate out of and, and do all kinds of discipleship and meetings with students. And so if you're ever there, feel free to stop by. Uh, we actually work with all the downtown college campuses. Let's see if this will switch over. Uh, we work with all the downtown college campuses. Oh, there we go. We work with, uh, so the College Charleston, the Citadel, American College of Building Arts, Trident Technical College. These are all schools that we connect with and serve and have an opportunity to mobilize students for the gospel. It's such a joy. Uh, ready or not, they are on their way, 27 days, uh, and they are moving in. The Citadel cadets will arrive and get their heads shaved and uh, College Charleston students will move in and get their surfboards issued, and uh, just life in Charleston will begin, so we're so excited. Um, so, but as a ministry, and you might see it up there, it's a little bit small, but our vision is learning and living grace and truth. Learning and living grace and truth. And this is really where we landed when we really decided, what's the why behind it, and what do we really want students to, to, to emulate and to see take place in their life? So learning and living is just a simple definition of a disciple, someone that learns the words of Jesus and then lives those out, right? Obedience-based discipleship. We don't want to just learn more stuff and then just not do it and be held accountable for it. So teaching students a, a simple truth and then having them live it and moving that forward is our desire. And then grace and truth, it's how we define uh, love. And we'll see today as well how grace married with truth is the love and the power of the gospel. And so we're so excited. It's, it's a blast uh, to be, work with quirky college students downtown. Uh, I grew up an Army brat. My dad was in the Army for 22 years, so the civil mentality, kind of get it a little bit. College of Charleston, as I mentioned, we were, we were living in New York City, and it really had a heart for the Northeast, and that's what College of Charleston is. You may not know that, 
but of the full-time College of Charleston students, about half are in-state, half are out-of-state, and the large majority of those out-of-state students are from the Northeast. Uh, believe it or not, there's twice as many active students right now, right here downtown, from the state of Connecticut than the state of Florida. Uh, that kind of blew my mind. I know Florida has like hundreds of universities, whatever, but uh, the reality that God is calling people from the Northeast to Charleston, and so it's such a joy and a privilege to be a part of it. And so this, this idea of grace and truth, and that's where we're going to be today, is this topic of the transforming grace for college students uh, and for all of us and the opportunity we have in that. Um, so let me pray, um, and we'll jump in. Dear the Father, I thank you so much for your grace um, that allows me to stand up here now. Father, I pray that all those that hear my voice would join me and uh, would pray for your spirit to move, would pray for me to be used that the words that come out of my mouth would be honoring and glorifying to you, but they would be what you want to share to our hearts. And we'd be quick to hear, uh, quick to listen, and quick to be obedient to as you lead. So, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, learning and living grace and truth. Grace and truth. Um, you maybe have experienced that. I'm, I'm sure all of you guys have experienced grace at some point. You've all experienced truth at one point. But I would venture to say that a lot of us probably grew up maybe with a little bit more truth and maybe a little less grace. Like there's things in your household that uh, you can do this, this, but if you cross that line, grace is expired, right? There's, there's, the truth is going to come down heavy on that one. And so and for a lot of our students, they come from that background. And what we talk about is that if you have truth, but you don't have grace, you can really damage people. People can, can walk away damaged um, if the truth of the God is, is brought like a, like a club rather than a scalpel and it can really damage people. But just as dangerous, maybe even more so, is, true, is grace without truth deceives people, right? We see that all over our country. What's true for you is true for you and right for me and just grace. We want to just love you and not tell you what uh, the truth of the Bible is, that there's authority, there's no uh, absolute truth. It's just whatever you want to define it as. And we just know that isn't true. It's not helpful. Uh, and it really deceives people. Um, and, and we find that a lot with our students. So in John 1, here we go, John 1, 14, uh, it reads, and the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Continue on to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. So Jesus provided this perfect example for us. We have a template. We have a framework where uh, Jesus lived out how, this, how these two can live, right? Because we saw grace. You, it's very easy. It jumps out of the page. We see Jesus healing people uh, that are sick and, and hurting. He was feeding people that are hungry. He was validating and affirming people that are marginalized in, in society and set apart and cast out there in the Roman world. Uh, but we also see the powerful boldness of truth that he walked with, right? In John chapter 8, after he rescues this woman that was caught in adultery and a group of men were about to stone her, he's, he steps in, rescues her from that. But in verse 11, he says, go and sin no more, right? He, he doesn't hide from that reality that this is sin and you don't need to do it. And so to, to carry that balance is, is such a worthy endeavor for us as believers to emulate that reality in our lives. 
And, and like I said, I think I know I sometimes lean more to the heavy-handed with truth and, and not wanting to forgive and, and display grace. And it only takes, you know, one time being cut off in traffic on 26 or 17, and it's their fault, and they yell at you, right? And they honk at you, and you're like, no, right? Like all of a sudden, it just wells up within you where you're like, want them to know that you were here first, and they came in on you. Um, and just this, this desire for our own justice and this kind of this pride that can well up within us is dangerous. Or if we're interacting with friends or family that are just making poor decisions and we want to be like, well, if you didn't do that and that and that, this probably wouldn't happen, right? And can, we can lean into that as well where we see all this um, and it can be a slippery slope of being heavy-handed with truth and, and not maybe walking in grace as we should. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Romans 12. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, pleasing and holy to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore you'll be able to test and approve what is good, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will for our lives. And what does it say at the top? The most critical thing, it says, in view of God's mercy. And so that changes everything. If we have God's mercy in view, if we have it at the forefront of our minds, the ripple effects don't stop. They permeate every element of our life. And today I want to talk about seven of those things. There's many more, but seven of those things that I believe having God's mercy in view in our, in our windshield ready right in front of us, where it changes everywhere in the way that we, we drive through life. So, and, and just to clarify, a little Webster moment here. Grace and, tru- or grace and mercy are different words. I know that. Uh, grace, uh, mercy is actually the withholding of something bad. So the mercy of God is, is not punishing us like we should. And the grace is giving us something like a blessing. Um, but these things are so intertwined in hand-to-hand that I'll, pr- I'll use these kind of interchangeably if that's okay with you. Uh, if not, you can let me know afterwards. But I'm going to use grace and mercy a little bit interchangeably. Again, uh, grace is God doesn't destroy us as we, or mercy is he doesn't destroy us as we deserve, but God gives us life with Jesus. Uh, mercy is God withholds the crippling separation of being um, distant from God, and instead he actually gives us the grace of adopting us as his sons and daughters. So I hope you're on the same page there. There's a distinction, but I'll be using those both together. So all right, well, let's get started. If we have God's mercy in view, the first thing is that it produces hope, like a life-transforming, course-altering hope that changes everything about how we live and operate in our life. One, another one of my favorite passages is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 where it says, Blessed be the, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Folks, that's good news. That's powerful news. That's, that's shaking news for us to understand and live by. The, this is the kind of hope that sickness can't touch, um, poverty can't touch it, persecution can't touch it, death can't touch this kind of living hope. It changes everything. 
And Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, "Now don't fear those who can only kill the body." But he goes on to say, "But fear those that can destroy the soul, which is God." And so he's saying that if the worst that the world can do to you is is send you home to be with God, like like they don't hold any power over you. There's nothing to fear. And, and Paul truly understood this in Philippians 1.21. He says, for, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like it's a gain if I get to go home and be with God. And if not, I'm going to live for Christ. It's just, there's just that simple for me. Because of this living hope that transformed Peter's life and Paul's life and their early disciples in our life. But read it again. Get down to verse, uh, it says, Blessed be the, Lord, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for you and guarded by God. That's, there's nothing like that in this world. There isn't. There's nothing that we can compare to on this planet that is imperishable, unfading, undefiled. Last summer I got the joy to go to Egypt with, my, with some of my students, and we were in Cairo for 10 days getting to share with, with Muslim students. And while we were there, we got to see some of the sites. And so we're seeing, you know, I've seen some old rocks, but seeing 4,000-year-old bodies with hair and, and teeth and skin, it just blew me away. But there was a group of men that tried this, tried to replicate this inheritance. They tried to give them themselves an inheritance in the afterlife. And with really unlimited wealth, at the time, and with unlimited manpower, these Roman, these, these, sorry, these Egyptian pharaohs built these monuments to themselves, filled them with valuables, booby traps, huge mounts of rock and heavy stones to guard this inheritance for them in the afterlife, and unfortunately, all of them have been defiled. They've all been broken into and, and robbed. They've all, they're all perishing. They're all fading. The limestone has fallen off many of them. And it's, it's, it's a, a, a shadow of what it used to be. And it, with their greatest effort. But you, but am I, but those that understand and see the, the mercy of God, our inheritance is, is unfading and unperishable and undefined. That's unbelievable. So, continuing on. Number two... If we have God's mercy in view, it also, it kills legalism. It kills it. If we have God's mercy in view, there's no way we can be legalistic. And legalistic is kind of going back to that John 1, 4, 1, uh, 16, 17, where it says the, the law came through Moses, but it's grace and truth that came through Jesus. That's what it's talking about there. That many people back then, many people today, use the law as a checklist of things they don't do, good, 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 things they do, that's good, 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 and they believe they can build themselves this idea that I can be good enough um, to receive eternal life on my own means. And it's just, it's just not true. Um, and the reality is that we have God's mercy in view, we, we realize that, and that that whole idea of being good enough is shattered before the throne, and, and pride dies at the foot of the cross. Ephesians 2, 8-9 talks about that. It says, For grace alone we are saved, and not through works, so that no man can boast. It's only by the power of the gospel that we are brought into uh, God's redeeming family. So it's hard to feel proud when we, when we understand that you are rescued while we were helpless and while we were destitute. And, and by the grace of God, I've experienced that in my life spiritually and, and and one time I almost experienced that physically 
Um, I'm, I'm one of six kids. I'm the fifth of six. Uh, my family, we're kind of scattered. Right now we're in Alaska, uh, Kentucky, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina. We're kind of all over. At some point, we were actually six of us in six different time zones around the world. Um, so when I graduated college, I graduated from Presbyterian College in 2011. My parents gave me a little gift of the tour day family. I got to go visit my siblings in different places. So I got to go to Hawaii for two weeks and visit my sister and her husband that were stationed at the Air Force Base there and, and go kayaking out to these amazing islands and do all these crazy things. Uh, well, after that, I got back to the States, or I guess it's still the States, back to the lower 48. And when I arrived, I got to drive up to Massachusetts. My older brother was, at the time, in the NFL playing for the New England Patriots. And uh, while he was there, we got to spend some time together in Foxborough and then drive up the coast of Maine and go camping. And he didn't really plan anything. It was kind of just him. So we, uh, we just had to kind of wing it. So we drive up there and we, we, you know, find a little campsite in this little peninsula. We reached into the cold water and pulled out our own lobster out with our bare hands. I mean, it had rubber bands on it there, but still, we pulled it out of the cold water and we roasted it over our own fire. It's details, people, details. And... <laughs> And we got to roast our own fire and had this amazing time. Well, the next morning we realized that in our little cove that our peninsula made, there's, there's canoes there. And this canoe, um, we got to row out there. And so 600 pounds of men climbs inside this canoe and we're, we're rowing around the calm waters. And then we get to the end of the peninsula and we realize this feeds right into the ocean. And I had just a week before been kayaking out in the, you know, the Pacific Ocean in, in Hawaii. So a canoe, kayak, I mean, they're pretty much the same thing, right? Uh, wrong, they are not. Um, so we begin kayaking out to the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, we're going. And so we're up with these waves, and the plan is we're going to get out there, pass the waves, turn around, come back. It'll be fun. Unfortunately, we just kept going, and waves didn't stop. We're in the North Atlantic Ocean, and uh, we just keep going further and further and further. And it's early May. It's still pretty darn chilly, the water, year-round. And we realized, man, we are... <laughs> We are really in a bad situation here. The, the, the coast is getting smaller. We're, we're well over a mile out to the Atlantic Ocean in a metal canoe. Um, and we're like, gosh, why are we so dumb? Why are we doing this? And so at that moment, I realized that at, both of us are six foot four. My brother's in the NFL, so he's also huge. I'm, I'm a big guy. Realized the humbling reality that if this canoe were to tip over and this metal thing were to sink to the bottom of the North Atlantic, I'm probably not going to make it back. The only way I'm going to get saved is if a little 160-pound Coast Guard at five foot eight is lowered down from a line and plucks me out of the water like a child. It's probably how I'm going to get saved. And it was just like this humbling reality that there's no room for pride in that situation. And that's what happened to us. Like, that is the gospel. Like, there's no way for you to be rescued. You can't swim to shore. It's too cold. You're not going to make it. You're too far out. You are completely and up, utterly helpless and destitute if, that, if it flips over. And guess what? It did flip over back in Genesis. And we're sinking and we're freezing. And it's only by the, being rescued and pulled out of that, that that we can live and continue to live and have new life. And, that, and I remember that being such a, a transforming moment in my life when I saw that picture of the gospel. So that's, that's one thing is that it kills legalism. Number three is also that it also fosters an intimacy with God. If we have God's mercy in view, there's an intimacy that's fostered with him, especially through prayer. And we experience this in, in a variety of, of sweet ways with the Lord. Um, and so uh, Matthew 6, 6 talks about Jesus actually instructs his disciples, don't, don't pray out on the streets for everyone to hear you. Go into a quiet room by yourself where, where only he sees you and talk to God there. And we saw that with Daniel, this, this prayer life of this sweet reality that if we truly see 
the mercy of God on display and understand his grace and his fullness, like we're going to want to just, we, our result is falling to our knees. After you've been rescued, you're on your knees, just so thankful and grateful. And it impacts our prayer in amazing ways. So I encourage you, spend time reflecting on God's incredible mercy in your life and see what happens to your prayer life. See how God moves in the midst of that. Number four. Got it? There we go. It also drives evangelism. If we have God's mercy in view, it, it drives and fuels our desire to go and share with others. Because reality is, if, if it's not good news, it's, it's, you're not going to share it, right? It's only the good news or the exciting news or, or this, this unbelievable, life-changing news that we have time in these busy life to, to actually share with other people. And so um, my, my prayer is that we would have that at our forefront uh, as we think through this. And so Second Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And this is echoing back. This is in Peter, written by Peter. But this is echoing back to the Old Testament too. That God stepped in and chose the Israelites to be a chosen people. And he said, I'm going to bless you so they can be a blessing to the world. And so they said, no, for the most part, we like just being the blessing. We like being the blessing part, not being a blessing to others. But we, as followers of Jesus, are blessed so that we can bless. We're called so that we can call others into repentance. And when we see that, when we see the opportunity that, that there is a rope hanging down and, and someone that's rescuing us, that we want to, we, we have a passion and a desire not to see others continue to drown and a passion to, to tell others about this, this transforming work and how it's moved and, and altered our life in a dramatic and profound way. So it drives this desire to share the gospel. Uh, the Great Commission speaks of going and, and making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because I am with you always. And so this drive is not alone. It's anchored in the gospel and the presence of Jesus being with us and the Holy Spirit working through us. But understanding his mercy fuels that desire. Number five, having God's mercy in view, it yields mercy. Mercy begots mercy. If we have God's mercy in view, if, we're, if we have in the forefront of our mind, if we're reflecting on this daily, it makes it really difficult uh, to hold grudges and, and hold back forgiveness and not extend mercy to other people, right? Like, it's really hard. And, and, and that, that's a huge thing. And in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, that's the whole point of the parable of the unforgiving servant. You guys have probably heard that parable before where a guy comes before the king and he has this unsurmountable debt. He can't pay it. No, no even close. I mean, modern day millions upon millions. He could work his whole life and, and never be able to pay back in, in a part of it. And, and, and the king goes to throw him in jail, and, and he begs for mercy. And, and the king says, all right, not only am I not going to throw you in jail, your debt is gone. And you can just imagine hearing that, that grace, that mercy being poured out on that man, uh, withholding his, his punishment, but also giving him a, a debt-free slip. And then this man goes out to the street and finds a guy that owes him you know, a couple hundred bucks and throws him in jail. And the whole point of the story is there's... That doesn't happen, right? He's speaking to the Pharisees, and whoa, how could anyone do that? 
That's the point. How could anyone do that? How could we do that? How could we be forgiven such a debt and yet hold a debt against anyone else? So if we understand the mercy and the grace of God, we're going to extend that to others. And that's going to transform the way we interact with those in our life. Next, number eight. There we go. Uh, Sorry, number seven. Number six. There we go. Number six. Uh, It purifies worship. If we have God's mercy in view, it purifies worship. We're not able to just mutter words, and we're not able to just interact with God in a way um, that lacks that. I mean, that song we just sung where it says, um, the living hope. Who, Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such a boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, it's, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Wow. Like if we truly let that sink in, it changes the way we worship. And I'm not just talking about songs, uh, right, more than singing. Romans 12 just talked about that. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that'll be your, your true and proper worship in verse 1. And so this worship is, is all of us. We're a living sacrifice, pleasing and holy to God. And we give up all of ourselves, whether we eat, drink, whatever we do. We do it all for the glory of God. And so understanding the mercy of God really helps purify our worship into something sweet and not something that's forced and obligated or anything outside of that, outside of a love for him. And then finally, number seven, with God's mercy in view, it also defines our identity. This is a big one, especially for our college students. Who am I? Where, where am I going? What am I going to study? Who am I going to marry? What's next? And even when I'm there, who am I really? And what, 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 why am I on this planet? That's one of the most incredible questions that we, the church, have an opportunity to answer for the world. That we know who they are. We know why they're here. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever and to be a part of the great mission that God has called. And that's where it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, that we are new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then it goes on to say that you have been reconciled and then you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's, that's unbelievable. That changes everything about how we view ourselves and the identity that we have. And so I pray that as we kind of look through that and just kind of spend time reflecting over how am I seeing God's mercy at work in my life? This, again, isn't a checklist. You're not supposed to go, yep, see the hope, see, not, not too legalistic. You know, when this isn't a checklist, this is evaluating where do we see our heart? Because, again, it's by grace alone and not through, not through faith. And maybe it's we need to put down the list and put down the, uh, the, 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 the club of truth and finally truly receive the grace that Jesus offers. To ask him to rescue you instead of trying to climb up that rope, have him pull you up. There's no way to climb. So as we think through this and evaluate, do we see this living hope and do we see this intimacy and this desire to share others and to display mercy and to purely worship Jesus as who he is and live as a new creation with our new identity? 
pray that for each one of us. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I love you. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together and worship together and I uh, pray that our worship would be pure and be sweet to you, your ear. I pray that you would um, see our true repentance and our true desire to be learners and livers of this grace and this truth and to be dis- to display your mercy to the world. Father, we've been given such an amazing opportunity as you've adopted us as children and reconciled us to the Father that we would be ministers of reconciliation and we take that with joy. Father, whatever is working in our hearts right now as, as the team comes and lead us in a song, I pray that we would be obedient and responding. In Christ's name I pray.